You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. So I love, I love my job. I love, uh, I love this church. I love you tremendously. It's a privilege and an honor each week to come here and uh, be a part of a larger fellowship called North Valley. So uh, this morning we're going to talk about God's incre- incredible grace and love for all people. And uh, we're in the book of Acts, and I want to bring to you kind of a cultural analysis and then give you some biblical exposition uh, through Acts chapter 10 and 11 and uh, some other passages as well. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Diversity, what is diversity? Diversity is defined as the state of having people who are different races or who have different cultures in a group or an organization. This morning, as we look through the uh, book of Acts, we're going to see that the churches that was the, the prominent church in the book of Acts was Jerusalem. It was homogenous, and it was a predominantly ethnically Jewish people. And what we're going to see is that God's heart has not simply just been for the Jewish people to be the ministers of God's uh, grace and mercy throughout all the nations, but it's for all people. And the church is going to have to transition because it's very much a homogenous group of people, meaning one race, a mono race. And so diversity is a big deal. It can be a barrier. Uh, The barrier of diversity can be economic, educational, or ethnic. Differences between others. These differences can too often and too easily become significant barriers or roadblocks to ministry. Um, You know, uh, generally speaking... um, what, what, one of the, one of these, uh, the, any of these barriers, they're just, they can be barriers because there's differences. And we tend to gravitate towards people in Western Christianity predominantly is uh, towards people just like us. And when there's significant economic differences or educational or ethnic, it can be a barrier between uh, fellowship with other believers, And so if the church, here's my hypothesis, is if the church fails to overcome these barriers of diversity, then it fails to be a true witness of Christ, and especially in today's culture. And you say, why is that? Well, uh, culturally speaking, uh, white populations are stagnant and projected to decline by 16 million over the next four decades. That's a lot of people. Um, it's projected to decline while minority populations are growing exponentially. So we are living in an increasingly diverse uh, country. Uh, So much so that uh, major church leaders uh, in our state, Arizona, and around the country are aware of this and saying, you know, the nations have come to North America. And uh, we must be uh, not simply trying to set up our own little ethnic tribes, but we need to learn how to uh, minister in the context that we're in and empower uh, minority leaders to be uh, gospel outposts in in different communities. Um, I met recently with uh, uh, Pastor Don Wilson over at CCV, the little church down the road. And uh, I asked him, what's next for you? You know, uh, a guy like Don Wilson, a guy like uh, oh, uh, uh, some of these other guys, Del Husay, uh down with Phoenix Seminary, Scottsdale Bible, um, 
some of these other guys, even the guys over at Phoenix First, some of the, those guys are like my heroes in so many ways because they've d- dedicated three, four decades of ministry to one church in one community. I mean, that, that's like powerful. That's so wonderful. So I asked him, what's next for you? You're, he's, 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 he's retiring from his role as senior pastor over there at uh, CCV. And I said, what's next for you? And he said, well, I'm going to continue to speak uh, and encourage church planters. And I'm going to focus a majority of my time on investing into Latinos uh, pastors around America. Because it is so significant and so important. Uh, we've got to understand this, this diversity deal. That if the church doesn't preach the message for all people and, and practically represent that and show that in its, in its congregation, its people, then uh, we're going to lose in the area of really saying our message is for all people. Here's, here's what I want to just have you think about. Uh, when the churches in the community stop looking like the nearby public schools or Walmart, Walmart made it into the message today, uh, and I like Walmart because it, it's at, from Arkansas, so a lot happens in Arkansas. Uh, or Walmart, it's usually a sign that the church is failing to reach its community. That's what the church ought to look like. It ought to look like what, what's happening in the public school system. That's what the church should look like. Why? Because the church needs to reach its community for Christ. God has assigned every single church an area to influence. The dead and dying churches... The dead and dying churches, this has happened, right? They get into a community, the demographics change, and what do they do? They hold on to tradition, they hold on to their plan, and guess what? They miss the entire community, and they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't change. My grandfather uh, was down in Dallas. He was a part of this little Methodist church in Dallas, uh, right off of 635, and uh, he, he was a part of this church. It was dynamic back in like the 60s, 70s. And then um, a large group of uh, Latinos moved into the community. And what happened was all the demographics changed. And instead of the senior pastor and the leadership and the congregation adapting, what they did is they set up a silo and tried to hold on to their church. Well, the congregation died and they shut the doors. You know, as the community changes, what we have to realize is that our churches need to modify because to, to be consistent to reach people for Jesus Christ. The Bible says, love your neighbors, and our neighbors are not just like us. So the increased diversity, here's a, here's a, a point getting into to the message today. The, this increased diversity in America presents new challenges and yet new opportunities like never before in American culture. We're kind of at a crossroads right now. This is a different time in America to share and show the love of Christ for all people. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at, uh, in the beginning, I want to talk to you about the prayer of Christ in John chapter 17. This is a paraphrase from the Good Word Translation, but it's at John chapter 17. It's been classically called the uh, high priestly prayer of Christ. For centuries, it's been called that, and it's the longest prayer attributed to Jesus and was meant to be overheard by Christians throughout the ages. This was the night before Jesus died. He prayed for you. He prayed for me. He prayed for all believers in all places at all time, and he shared the Father's heart for being united in one, one family. He says this, I pray that all these people continue to have unity in the way that you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray 
that they may be united with us. Look, look at this. So that the world will believe that you have sent me. God had it in his heart to express the incredible importance for um, a gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ that would be for all people. What makes the church a special place is that we can all come together from different backgrounds, economically, ethnically, educationally, and we have something in common. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the church, you don't have to worry about your status. You don't have to worry about that. What you need to realize is that we all are valued and have a unity through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can go on a mission trip and find yourself worshiping with people that don't even speak the same language. And you find a fellowship through the relationship with Jesus Christ. This prayer of Christ is something I want to encourage you to go home and read through John chapter 17 and hear God's heart for the nations in it. Jesus prayed this, that there would be a unity not just for the believers present and the early disciples, but for all believers of all times. And it would cross ethnic boundaries, educational, economic boundaries. The Apostle Peter's vision. That's what we're going to be looking at specifically this morning. Uh, chapter 10, if you've got a Bible, just turn there. I'm going to work us up to, I'm going to summarize up to verse 34. Um, but Cornelius, if you've got a Bible, you can just look right there. Uh, Cornelius is a gentleman who is in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. He's a commander. He is a, uh, no, he was a uh, very Jewish in his faith, but not ethnically. Um, he would have been a, a gentleman that God's going to use this guy to give him a vision of a a multi-ethnic church, uh, a vision for God's love for all people, not just simply for the Jewish people, but for those all outside of the ethnically Jewish people. God's going to use Cornelius. He's also going to use Peter. And he's going to give a vision to this uh, Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier. He's the highest office of, uh, that a non-noble could possibly achieve. He was a seeker of God. He wanted to know Jesus, but he was marginalized because he was a minority of the Jewish community. And God's going to use Cornelius to give him a vision and say, you've got to find that guy, Peter, and he's going to share a message with you. Go send your men to find him. So then Peter, in verses 9 through 16, um, we're going to see that the following day in the afternoon... He goes outside for some fresh air uh, for a late after a, uh, during a late lunch or, or a dinner, and God reveals to Peter a vision too. Peter knows that from God that he needs to meet Cornelius, and he's got to share a message to Cornelius about a, a, of God's love for all people. So this is exactly what happens. As soon as the men show up and say, "Hey, we've been we've been sent here," Peter gets it and says, "I know God's given me a vision." where do I need to go? And so he goes to Cornelius's house. Cornelius is a, a prominent individual and he invites all his friends and all his families over and says, okay, Peter, tell us what you have to say. What does God's word have to say about us? And look what, here's what Peter says. This is a powerful argument for the idea that God has a heart for all people. That God loves the Jewish people, but he's going to use everybody the church shouldn't just remain homogenous, but heterogeneous, a mixed group of people. So he says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Luke the historian records this, 
Uh, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand. There's an epiphany, a revelation that God shows no partiality. That's no favoritism. That phrase, no partiality, will later be picked up as a New Testament um, kind of paradigm on the Apostle Paul, James, and, and Peter as well, beginning to say that God doesn't show favoritism. That's, that's not how God acts. He doesn't show partiality. Verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, who does what is right and acceptable to him, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, all people. So Peter unveils this vision that God had given him, and he shares this vision to Cornelius and his family. And they, these non-Jewish people all come to faith in Christ, and now there's something happening that's totally different. They're beginning to see that the church is much broader than one ethnicity. But it is a, it, the, the message of the gospels for all nations, all people. Christ is, he is the Lord of all. This good news of peace that is in the Hebrew, it is the shalom. It's the special peace that one can experience with God. And so he says this peace through Jesus Christ the Lord. And continues in verse 37, he says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. See, the name and fame of Jesus had spread much further than Jerusalem, but into Judea and into Samaria. Very likely Cornelius and others had heard, maybe from other missionaries that had come, or maybe uh, through Philip or, 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 or uh, Stephen, some other guys. The Bible doesn't tell us, but Peter knows that they know about Jesus' reputation. Now, Cornelius was a Roman uh, uh, centurion. He was in charge of a hundred men. And he was, uh, the Roman Empire will be the ones that, uh, that had previously put Jesus to death. And so Jesus' name has penetrated into secular realms of society within the Roman Empire and absolutely within the religious community as well. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. What Peter's doing is he's given a little bit of a history lesson as to what his, about the life of Jesus Christ, the miracles that he's performed, that he was a historical figure. And he says, you know what happened. Look what he says in verse 39. He says, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And look what it says. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him, appear, made him to appear. Specifically, uh, Peter is rehearsing the gospel message with Cornelius. He's going to verify that this is... Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, He's 100% God, and yet He's 100% man. That Jesus would be hanged on the tree is a reference to the cross. That Jesus was crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That God raised Him up supernaturally on the third day, just as it was promised. And then He made Him to appear. It says, verse 41, Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. 
The Bible says that he appeared uh, to the uh, early apostles, the disciples uh, first, and then after that, he appeared to a group of believers up to 500. Uh, Jesus didn't appear to thousands and thousands and thousands, at least that's not what the scripture tells us. Uh, Possibly why he did that is a bit of a hypothesis, is that the, the, the message and the historical account of Jesus Christ was verified in key individuals. It's not like he just appeared over Jerusalem or, or in Judea from a sky and crowds and crowds and masses of people see Jesus. But it's personal. Look what he says. Verse 41, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God. These were recipients of the privilege and opportunity to see the risen Christ as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Jesus reappeared after his death, burial, and resurrection in physical bodily form. History is defined by these key events of the life of Jesus Christ. Historians, uh, both religious and non-religious, affirm that Jesus was truly a man, and he truly had a message uh, that was revolutionary to the Jewish community of his day. And here what Peter is doing is he's laying the groundwork that Jesus is real. It says he commanded, verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness, listen to this, that everyone who believes in him Not some, not a few, but everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. The message of the Gospel is sweet because it means for all people, whatever your ethnic background is, whatever your uh, educational background, whatever your economic status is, that anyone can receive forgiveness by believing in Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is revolutionizing in the Apostle Peter's heart. The people in Jerusalem are going to be a little freaked out by this. Because this is a new turn, a new development. That while God has always loved the Jewish people, even in the very beginning when God made a covenant with Abraham, He says, I'll make you a great nation. And you will, be, you will uh, have an influence for all other nations. And in the Psalms, the Bible talks about Israel being used to be a light unto all the nations and and in the prophets as well. But here, there's a shift where God is working powerfully through people outside of the Jewish race to be witnesses of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. We're going to see next that the pattern in Antioch affirms this Uh, diversity as well, that they need to overcome this barrier of diversity. Let's look at Acts chapter 11, and we're going to see not only does the prayer of Christ lends itself to the idea that God has an absolute heart for all people, not only does the the apostle Peter's vision affirm that, that reality, and the pattern in Antioch, we're going to see that there is a a pattern in which to follow in that this is a vibrant, healthy church that is diverse in a diverse community context. Now, before I go any further, I want to just clarify something. My heart and hope is, and just my theology is around a local church, is that 
the church ought to represent the community it lives in. Amen? Like, if this church, imagine if this church uh, was completely different than the entire community we lived in. It was, say, only the super high-end, wealthy, elite people. But yet, down the road, we have people that are not wealthy and elite. Or the predominant uh, demographics in this area is like 80% Caucasian. Well, guess what? That's fairly reflective of our church, right? But imagine if we were just one little people group, one little race, and then the world around us, the community around us, feels like they cannot come in because they're totally different. What's going on in the church is God's given a new vision and a new pattern for the local church. The early church is forming. The first church was Jerusalem. The second church is Antioch. And what we're going to see is that Antioch serves as a, an ideal paradigm and a model for church, even above and beyond Jerusalem, I would argue that. So Antioch, let me tell you about Antioch. Antioch, first of all, is a city. A lot of churches uh, anchored down in the New Testament, anchored down with the city name. They, they, they call it, I mean, that's why we named North Valley, North Valley. We're in the North Valley. So we're North Valley Community Church. So that means that we're going to reach the North Valley for Jesus Christ. Antioch had that same vision, the early leaders. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Antioch, the church, they're awesome. They sent money, they sent men, and they sent the message of hope to the hopeless. They are, in the, in the book of Acts, it was the first church that sought to take up a hope offering and bring hope to the hungry in Judea when a famine hit. According to Acts chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it was the first church to launch a missionary journey into Europe and Asia Minor. Jerusalem didn't do it, Antioch did. According to Acts chapter 13, 2 and 3, uh, it was the first church with a diverse leadership team. In Acts chapter 13, uh, the historian Luke lists out five leaders. Two from Africa, one from the Mediterranean, and another from the Middle East, and another from Asia Minor. Why? Because Antioch was incredibly diverse. It was a, it was a really cool city. The, the way they even uh, built up uh, the, the road systems, much like Phoenix. It was a, it was a city of 500 to 600,000. It was a mega city for that time. Um, it was very diverse ethnically. It was very diverse religiously. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was polytheistic, meaning they worship more than one God. And they began to preach a message of monotheism, one God, and about Jesus. And God starts doing incredible things. So Luke, the historian, picks up and tells us what happens in Antioch. Let's read. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But look what they did. These are the, these are the folks uh, that were coming out of Jerusalem speaking the word, that's the gospel message, to no one except Jews. So Luke's categorizing what's happening with the Jerusalem leaders is once that persecution hit with, with, with Stephen, People are going forth out of Jerusalem and they're, they're even in Antioch. Some of them are not even speaking to anybody else but except Jews. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, these are people outside of Jerusalem, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Cyprus would have been an island off of the uh, south of Asia Minor in the Mediterranean uh, Cyrene would have been North African. 
Um, and they're sharing the message to Greek-speaking Gentiles in Antioch, non-Jewish people. And here we see it. Uh, Luke, the historian, records there's some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. They're not preaching simply to Jews. They're preaching to all those that are anybody that would be receptive. Um, verse uh, 21 through 22. And the, the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the result. Here's what's going to happen. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's people from all different backgrounds. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they felt like they had to send Barnabas to Antioch to see what's going on. There was a bit of question. Are these people outside of the Jewish faith, God's holy chosen people, really come to faith in Christ? Are they, these are pagan people. These are polytheistic people. They've got all sorts of gods and they, they, uh, they're totally wrapped up in debauchery and all, all sorts of evil sins. Are these people really coming to faith in Christ? So they're going to send Barnabas to check it out. Barnabas is a good guy for this because he's an early convert to Christianity. He's born in Cyprus. So he is a, a minority in many ways, yet he was Jewish. His original name was Joseph. He gets the nickname Son of Encouragement because of his generosity and his care for people, his love for the church, and his love for people from all different backgrounds. So they send Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, let's see what happens. And he came and he saw, look at this, the grace of God. He sees the grace of God. He was glad, the Bible says, and he exhorted them, hey, all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And Luke adds, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Barnabas had a lot of faith in, in, in what God could do. That God can do anything and work with anybody. This ought to be encouragement to us all. God can take people from all different parts of life, all different uh, places in the, in the world, and do an incredible work. And look what it says. And a great many of people were added to the Lord. You know what Barnabas did? He overcame the diversity barrier. You know where Jerusalem is and the leaders there? They're freaked out and afraid. They don't like the idea of diversity. And Antioch is going to serve as an ideal pattern for ministry and a message that God's love is for all people and all nations. Look what it says in verse 25. I like this a lot. Barnabas is smart, but he knows he needs help. So he's going to go and get a scholar theologian that God's been working on while he's been in hiding. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul had been... Uh, had converted to Christianity, he again, that was a barrier as well for a lot of Christians who couldn't believe Saul of Tarsus is going to come to Christ. And so Barnabas knows that Saul's a sharp guy. He's later going to be uh, uh, renamed the Apostle Paul. He'll write most of the New Testament epistles and letters and give us our beloved doctrine of the Scriptures in the New Testament about uh, by grace alone, by faith alone. In Christ alone, he is a scholar to say the least. Barnabas goes to Tarsus, very likely where he's been hanging out and hiding, avoiding persecution with his friends and family. 
Not that he wasn't doing ministry there, but Barnabas goes and finds him because he knows he's got to go to Antioch. And he also knows that he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem and try to report and make sense of this, that God's doing something incredibly unique and different outside of the Jewish people. Verse 26, and when he found him, look, he brought him to Antioch. He says, we got to go to Antioch. There's God's grace is showing up in incredible ways. He's taking those paganistic prostitutes. He's taking those uh, high powerfully elite and the down and out and poor. And he's transforming these people totally outside of the Jewish faith. And they're coming to faith in Christ in mass numbers, Paul. Soon to be Paul. And you got to come. The Apostle Paul, I, I know that experience shaped his theology incredibly. I'll show you that in just a minute. Look what it says. It says, for a whole year they met with the church. So they, they're, they're there. They're anchored down. Uh, Antioch's got a new senior pastor. It's the Apostle Paul. What, what, a, what a great privilege. And he's seeing so many people outside of the, the uh, religious tradition come into faith in Christ, being baptized. Barnabas is his encouragement, his sidekick. He's the associate pastor, if you will. And they're a tag team ministry and doing a great work. And in Antioch, the disciples uh, were first called Christians. Isn't that fitting? That in a church like that, where this was the first place, it began to send out missionaries, this was the first place. I mean, this church stands uh, on top of, in my mind, uh, of Jerusalem in the sense of their commitment to the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and be a witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Antioch's going to be doing that. I'd call, uh, Paul will later call this a mystery of how God's working together with the Jews and the Gentiles. Look what he says, Ephesians 3, 6. Here is the mystery. It's called the Pauline mystery. Of what He uh, calls it a mystery. It's mysterious how God works in such incredible, gracious ways and working with all sorts of kinds of people. He says, because of the good news, God's promises are for the Gentiles as well for the Jews. Both groups are part of one body. That's one church. They share in, in the promise. It belongs to them because they belong to Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you to think about God's love for all people and then how do we reflect that as a local church. At the bottom line, this church ought to always at least reflect what the community looks like. It's always got to look like that. Because that means that there's a pretty good indication that we're reaching the people in our community. I want to give you some practical ways on breaking through a racial barrier of diversity. First thing is just treat all people with dignity, value, and respect. Why is that? Because the Bible says that we're made in the image of God. And at North Valley, you need to treat everybody with dignity, value, and respect. The, the Latin phrase in that understanding in Genesis is the Imago Dei. Every single person on the planet was made in the image of God. And so regardless of their lifestyle choices, their religious choices, their political choices, there's a value in love. And this ought to be the one place where we can unite together and under the banner of Jesus and treat each other with love, value, and respect. Secondly, I'd encourage you, be aware of your ethnocentric tendencies. And I've defined that for you and put it in your program. Basically means is that you tend to view the world through your paradigm. If you're white, upper middle class, you tend, the whole, you tend to see the whole world through your perceptions, your uh, preconceived notions and ideas. 
But you need to understand, God doesn't see the whole world like that. If, you, if, you, if you're a minority, uh, African American, Asian, or Latino, you tend to view the world from that ethnic background. Be aware of your ethnocentric tendencies. And then here's a hard one. I want to encourage you to repent of superiority or inferiority complexes. Repent means that you turn away from a sin of pride, selfishness, superiority, that somehow you think you're better than everybody else. Or it could be on the flip side, inferiority. You feel like a a lousy, no good nobody because of maybe your economic status, maybe because of your ethnic uh, 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 background or just because of your education. You don't have enough education. You know, I, I grew up uh, most of my life in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, Little Rock was the first school to have uh, 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 integration uh, with African Americans in the public school system, Central High. And uh, Little Rock is still very much uh, segregated in many ways. Um, I saw generational racism up close and in person. I'm talking about white kids that had never seen black kids and were told that black kids were not uh, completely human. And I saw black people uh, that hated white people because they generationally, from generation to generation, were taught that white people were evil and always wanted to suppress uh, 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 African Americans. It was generational uh, racism. You may have some of this in your family. And you should repent of that. It could be superiority, that somehow you're better. Or it could be inferiority, that you are no good. Or you're not lovable. Or you're not important to God. And we can turn to Him and say, No, Lord, you call me valuable. If you're a son, if you believed in Jesus Christ, you're a son or a daughter of the High King of Heaven. And the church needs to be a place where we develop a diverse group of friendships. People that are not like us. And we unite around the gospel message. And then we take intentional steps to promote a spirit of inclusion. You know that we include people that are different from us. It gives us perspective. It offers a message of grace and encouragement. And then lastly, I encourage you to participate and contribute regularly towards global mission. Missions change your life. Um, I was in Madrid, Spain uh, years ago. I was invited to plant a church in Madrid, and I'm glad we came to Phoenix. But uh, we had a big dispute when I was invited to be a part of a missionary team uh, planting a church in Madrid. And it predominantly actually revolved around ethnicity. What happened was the Spanish people were rejecting the gospel message over and over and over and over again for centuries. And I told the leadership team I was working with, I said, we've got to take the gospel message to the international community. People that are non-indigenous Spaniards need to hear the gospel. They're here in mass numbers. And what we were seeing was the Pentecostal churches, the Assemblies of God churches, praise God for them. They were sharing the gospel to the lower class. They were sharing the gospel to those outside of the indigenous people group in Spain. And the churches were exploding and growing like crazy. And they were the most vibrant, beautiful places uh, in Spain. And I told the team, we've got we've to reach the international community. And uh, they said, no. And I said, then I can't plant here. I can't do that. Um, missions will change the way you think about people 
Because it's your, when you get outside of your geographical area, you realize the great magnitude of God's heart for all people, all nations. I want to share with you one encouraging uh, a few story with L.A. We had a couple in L.A. that we've been partnering with in Crenshaw, downtown L.A., a very diverse community, and the church is very diverse. So I, I praise God. Had I gone and visited, it was a couple weekends ago, and the church was not reflective of its community, I would say, I would advocate and tell our leadership team, we need to pull out of helping plant this church because it's not reflective of the community. Uh, this is Pastor Tommy and his wife, and the church is very reflective of their demographics. It's in Crenshaw. We had another family from our church that recently went down there with us and uh, just to support. And it was really cool because of your hope offering you gave last year. We're able to do this, help start new churches and new communities. And specifically, it's important that we see gospel churches, not just in uh, suburban communities, but in inner cities, because there's a mass um, redistribution of people populations in major cities and the inner cities. Um, we gave them a bunch of... Uh, uh, sound equipment and gear and it was cool because we gave it to them on like Thursday and on Sunday they had everything up that we gave them like immediately put to use um, I want to encourage you to do that so I, let me just ask you this will you receive this message today to share and show the love of Christ to all people can you can, can you receive that that the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel the grace of God is for all people amen amen well, I want to close our, our, our time and I don't want to miss the opportunity uh, before closing. I want to invite anyone who hasn't started a pers personal relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe today to do that. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Pray with me silently. For those of you that are ready to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can pray something like this. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge I've sinned against you and I believe in your son Jesus Christ. Forgive me of my sins. And I confess you today as my new Lord and my Savior. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for meeting me where I'm at. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that simple prayer, the Bible says that you've been adopted into God's family. And we want to welcome you into our church family. I'll be right here after the service to welcome you. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.